0: Bennett's Cash and Carry was a corner store. More neighborhood grocery than 7-Eleven. Half of the store was stocked with groceries. Nothing too fancy. Meat, bread, chips, milk, sodas, or Coke, as they say in Georgia. The front of the store is where it was at. There was a lunch counter, the old-fashioned kind. They served hamburgers, barbecue, fries, and the best chili dogs around. The store was owned by William Carroll Bennett. His family was well-known in town. They'd been there for several generations. Everyone knew Bennett as a kind and gentle man. His employee, Rebecca Browning, was also well-known and well-liked, friendly and sweet. She was usually behind the lunch counter. The store is on the
1: south side of Adel, Georgia, near the outskirts of town. It was a long, concrete block building on West 9th Street. There was a warehouser plant down the way that made particle board, and a few houses scattered nearby. Directly behind the store were the railroad tracks that sliced the small city in half. So it was popular with the guys who worked on the railroad. People like Lloyd Crumley, an engineer who drove freight trains for nearly 40 years. We'd stop there
2: quite often. Uh, we'd have to work a little place called Warehouser, and it was right beside the track, and we could just get off and go in there and get us a hamburger for lunch and then go finish the rest of our customers. We, we enjoyed them. They were really nice people.
1: It wasn't just the railroad people who loved it, though. The store was a real neighborhood fixture. Here's how Gail Bennett, the owner's widow, describes it.
3: You're actually really a family business because my girls grew up there. They grew up choking people out, working in the store, and doing hot dogs and hamburgers at lunch and stuff like that when they weren't in the schools.
1: And when somebody didn't have enough money for groceries, her husband often gave them credit until the end of the month.
3: Yeah, he did. He did that. And especially those that were on fixed income that had Social Security. He would, you know, let them get groceries until they got their check on the end of the month or the first of the month.
0: The community genuinely loved Bennett and Browning. It was inconceivable that anyone would want to hurt them. Yet two years after Donna Brown died at the Taco Bell and six months after Salish Patel was killed, two more shocking murders, Bennett and Browning, inside the store, just before lunchtime. From The Intercept, I'm Liliana Segura.
1: And I'm Jordan Smith. This is Murderville, Georgia.
0: These last two murders of the four that rocked Avell, may be the bloodiest. We wanted to understand what happened and looked for clues that might connect them all.
1: I hope it's marked, you know, because this is kind of a country road. And, um, it's sort of unclear. I wonder if we passed it, because doesn't it seem like that's the end of the road? Yes. We have to have passed it by now. These aren't even houses. I didn't see any houses. There were some over there. Oh. But maybe it's up here. We went to visit Lloyd Crumley at his house on the outskirts of Valdosta, about a half hour south of Adel. It's a tidy white house set far back from a secluded country road. There's a rooster in the yard and a tractor with its engine running. Guess they were here.
0: Okay, well...
1: I think this is him. Mr. Crumley? Up to the back door. Hey, hey. Oh, I don't know. I don't even know. Sorry. I'm Jordan. Nice to meet you. And this is Hi. my colleague, Liliana. Hey, Liliana. Oh,
2: yeah. yeah, I thought you'd pull up around here like most people do. Well, oh, I did not even
1: know if we were at the right house. Crumley's so. retired now, but he still drives a train sometimes for the smaller railroad operators. We sat with him on a brown leather sofa in his airy, light-filled living room, and he told us what happened the day William Bennett and Rebecca Browning were killed.
0: It was a Friday. Crumley was working with a brakeman named Corbett Bellflower, the man he and everybody else calls Cornbread, and a conductor named Wayne Peters. The three of them worked together for years. It was just after 11 a.m. when they decided to break for lunch. Peters was starving, so he led the way.
2: That day, my conductor, uh, he jumped off a little bit ahead of us, uh, me and my brakeman. He was a little bit... Anxious. (laughs) say it that way.
0: Crumley and Cornbread stayed behind to make sure the train was properly parked.
2: The duties of my brakeman and myself was to uh, secure the train to where it, it wouldn't roll away or nobody could jump on it and take it off or anything like that.
1: The train was behind the store, just feet from the entrance. The men were used to working together, so it took them mere minutes to secure the train. As Cornbread recalled it, they were really just seconds behind Peter's. As soon as the train was set, Crumley and Cornbread headed over to the grocery store. They were looking forward to a lunch cooked by the woman that Crumley affectionately called Miss Becky. They walked down a path worn through the grass around the side of the building and into a dusty parking lot that ran all the way up to the front of the store. The door was near the middle of the building and there were four large windows across the front. As they approached the entrance, Crumley noticed something odd.
2: And as we got off the engine, a guy come walking by me with a baseball bat behind his back and got in a car. And I thought, my Lord, that sure did look unusual, you know. What you, that don't look right.
0: The man was black, 20-something, nearly 6 feet tall, more than 200 pounds, short hair. He was wearing dark blue pants The bat seemed to have some kind of stains on it. It looked suspicious. Crumley filed it away in his head, but kept going. The way you do with something that seems kind of strange. The man walked toward a blue car parked diagonally right in front of the store. Crumley and Cornbread kept walking towards the grocery. Crumley got there first and reached for the door.
2: And then my brakeman and myself, we went in and went to open the door and this black guy was holding the cash register in the door. And I reached to open the door for somebody coming out, and then I looked and I said, he had a big cash register in his hands."
0: A man, carrying a great big electric cash register, with the cord dangling from the back. He was a big guy, also black, wearing a hockey jersey and white Nikes. There were small red spots on them. He burst through the door.
2: I said, hey bud, what you doing with the cash register? And so he threw the cash register and knocked me down with the cash register.
0: Crumley threw his arms up to try to catch it.
2: I caught it with my hands as it come to me, and it didn't really hurt me at all. I just fell backwards because it's pretty heavy. A cash register is pretty large, you know. And he had it in his own. He just went, "Yeah!" and just, you know, screamed at me and threw it at me because I said, boy, what are you doing with that cash register? And he didn't like what I said, <laughs> so he knocked me down with it.
1: Crumley quickly scrambled to his feet. The man who had thrown the cash register ran toward the blue car. The man with the bat was already inside it, sitting in the passenger seat. And
2: the other guy with me went to grab him. Cornbread. He's a big old feller, the feller that was with me. Big old guy.
1: Crumley thought we might want to talk to Cornbread to hear his version of the events of that day. He offered to call him for us. Cornbread. What are you doing, feller? Working. Look
2: him. You remember when uh, the Bennett store got robbed and them two people got killed? Me and you went in there? You remember all of that? Uh-oh. I called Conrad. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm trying to get a hold of cornbread. I, I dialed the wrong number, Conrad. I'm sorry. Yeah, all right. <laughs> you, you Conrad instead of cornbread. All right, let me dial the right number this time. Excuse me, buddy. <laughs> all right, bye.
1: He tried again.
2: Oh, let me try to find cornbread to the Conrad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. What did I do that for? Good gracious. Now, see, cornbread is the next one down under <laughs> <Conrad>. <laughs> And I, die. I hit the wrong button there. I might not can get it. He's an engineer on the railroad now. He may be on the railroad. If he is, he can't answer. Hey, Feller, what you up to? You are? Well, Lord help. Let me run something by you. You remember that Browning guy where me and you went in the restaurant, uh, the little store there, and he'd kill him people? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's two ladies that's uh, reviewing that and wanting to talk to people about it nowadays. Would you be willing to talk to someone about it? Suppose I hand you them my phone and let you talk to them and, and you give them the information. Will that be all right?
1: Are you sure? All right. Okay. Hello? Is this Mr. Bellflower, correct? Yeah. <laughs> My name is Jordan Smith, and I'm working We didn't have a good way to record what Cornbread told us, but it corroborated Crumley's story.
0: Cornbread wasn't able to catch the man with the cash register before he got behind the wheel of the blue car. He tore out of the parking lot, churning up dirt, speeding off to the west toward the Weyerhaeuser plant. Crumley and Cornbread jumped into action. Crumley pulled a pen from his shirt pocket and quickly jotted down the license plate number. Crumley then turned back to the store. He knew his conductor, Wayne Peters, was already inside. Cornbread noticed that Peters' baseball cap was caught in the door.
2: Uh, I opened the door and looked in the door.
0: Peters was on the floor.
2: My conductor was laying on the ground over there just bleeding.
0: He had been hit in the head. His scalp was peeled back near his ear. There was a lot of blood. Crumley was horrified.
2: I tell you, it's shocking to see something like that, to see that much blood on the ground. I didn't know people would bleed that much.
0: Amazingly, Peters was alive.
2: But he was hurt pretty bad. He had a big place on the back of his head that the hide was peeled over on his head, you know. But uh, when I walked over and went to pick him up, he was alive. He wasn't dead.
1: William Carroll Bennett The owner of the store was also on the floor, near the meat counter.
2: And then I walked on in, and I found Mr. Bennett laying in the middle with a big puddle of blood. His whole head was bashed in.
1: The pool of blood extended from his head to his waist. His legs were straight out, and his hands were up by his face. There was blood on the ceiling and on the counter, and a space in the blood to his left, where his assailant had been standing. On the floor, there were bits of skull and scalp with the hair still attached.
0: Rebecca Browning, the woman who worked for Mr. Bennett, had also been viciously attacked. There was blood spatter on the lunch counter near a partially eaten sandwich and a cup of tea. Browning's purse was next to it. There was $2.19 inside. Dark hair was stuck to the blood. A pair of dentures were found on the floor near her body, which was also drenched in blood.
2: And then the lady that done the little cooking, she was over to my right. I could see her, too. She was tried to get up under the counter, but... He had killed her, too.
0: Bennett and Browning each died of blunt force injuries to the head, injuries consistent with a baseball bat. Only Peters survived the attack.
2: Yeah, I was very surprised that Wayne was still alive. So I drug him to the door and put my handkerchief over, you know, the back of his head and all that and just held him and had uh, dialed 911 and had talked to them and was telling them what was going on. And, uh, of course, they got there in just a few minutes, the police and the Amush both.
1: Crumley's call came in at 11:12 a.m. The AL cops arrived soon after, and they called in the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, the GBI, to take over. They did that anytime there was a big case to solve. Jamie Steinberg, the GBI agent who investigated Donna Brown's murder, would take the lead.
0: Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Bennett family, which owned the grocery, had deep roots in Adel. Bennett's widow, Gail, told us it wasn't just his daughters who had sold hot dogs there in the summer.
3: Uh, My husband was raised there. I was raised not far from there, a little town in Nashville. So, yeah, the Bennetts have been there for several generations.
0: They had owned the store for about a dozen years. Bennett's brother, Daryl, also owned a store, which he'd had for almost 20 years. Daryl told the Adel News-Tribune that running a country store is a good, clean way to make a living. You have to have it in your blood.
1: Gail told us that on the day her husband died, she was out with a friend— They were both nurses at the local hospital. Gail was helping to plan her friend's daughter's wedding. They had heard the sirens, but didn't think much of it.
3: Then I got a call around lunchtime from director of nurses saying I needed to come home. They wouldn't tell me anything. When I got to the hospital, everybody was there. Most of the family and the friends and the deacons of the church were there. What did you think? Can you remember what was going through your mind? that it couldn't be true, mostly shock, anger, wanting to see him, and I wasn't allowed to. Basically, when he kissed me by that good morning, that was the last time, that morning was the last time I seen him.
1: Gail Bennett had lived in the area nearly all of her life, but she couldn't bear to stay in Adele after her husband died. It took a few years, but eventually she moved to Maine, where she works as a traveling nurse. She's on the road a lot and hard to reach but we caught her on the phone one day. She told us about meeting her husband when she was 16 and he was 18.
3: Back then we just rode around town and we met and started dating and we went out on a double date to start with and then we started dating and ended up getting
1: married. They got married in 1973. His obituary said that he was an army veteran and the Sunday school superintendent at his church. They had kids and grandkids.
3: We had three girls. And he got to see three of the grandchildren. He didn't get to see all of the grandchildren.
1: She remembers her husband fondly.
3: He uh, was a very caring person. He uh, would do anything for you. He was a deacon of the church that we went to. Uh, He was just a very kind, loving family, father, grandfather.
0: But she isn't the only one who loved him. Tim Balch, the retired Adel police officer remembered how he'd helped out in the community, both on the black and white sides of town.
1: I, I mean, I can't tell you, probably two or three hundred people that I talked with owed Mr. Bennett over $1,000 because he would give them groceries at the end of the month, even when they had no money. He made sure the kids were going to eat and stuff like that. I mean, he, he was a big-hearted guy, and it was a very adverse reaction down there on him getting killed.
0: Rebecca Browning was well-loved, too, she was married and had a bunch of kids, a son, a daughter, and five stepkids. Her obituary ran just above Bennett's in the newspaper. There's a picture of her, smiling. She has curly hair, pulled back. She wears glasses and small hoop earrings. Lloyd Crumley, the train engineer, remembered that she was the one who always cooked for them.
2: She'd fix us hamburgers and hot dogs and just as sweet a lady as you ever met in your life. Um... Uh, I really hated to see that. It looked like she had tried to get away from him, and she was up under the counter. Terrible.
1: The community's response to the murders of Bennett and Browning was powerful, far more so than the reaction to the grisly murder of Salish Patel, which was still unsolved. First, there was just shock. Right after the crime, people gathered across the street. They saw paramedics attend to Wayne Peters and watched the police put up yellow crime scene tape. Then there was an outpouring of support, flowers and cards and remembrances in the Adel News Tribune, and lots and lots of prayers. By the end of the year, the Bennett family had bought an ad in the paper to show the family's gratitude. Words of thanks could never start to express the love we felt from this community at the time of the death of our loved one, it read.
0: May God bless you, the family of Carol Bennett. The investigation into this murder started out on much stronger footing, certainly compared to the murders of Salish Patel and Donna Brown. This was mostly thanks to the quick thinking of Lloyd Crumley as he watched the men speed off. They drove a blue Cadillac with the muffler hanging low.
2: And as it come by me, I just looked at a, a tag number. I said, you know, I might not remember that tag number, so I keep a pin on me at all times, you know, for uh, railroad use. So I wrote it down across my hand. The tag number It's a good thing I did.
0: The number was 104 WRS, a Georgia tag. After the ADEL PD showed up, they put out a call for the car and the tag. Within minutes, an officer on patrol spotted the car pulling into a trailer park right around the corner from Bennett's Grocery. There was only one man in the car now. Police pulled him over. The driver sat in the car for a minute. Then he got
1: out. It was the large man from the grocery store with the red spots on his Nikes the man who threw the cash register and ran. When the police asked him his name, he lied. He gave them a false one. But he wasn't fooling anyone. Police knew exactly who he was. It was Hercules Brown, 20 years old, former Cook County High School student and member of the school's band, the beloved son of an important woman in town, and a guy with a mean streak.
0: People in Adel knew that Hercules' behavior had been getting worse, and more violent. Some had even told the cops that he might have been responsible for the last two murders in town. In particular, Donna Brown, the crime that Devanya Inman was facing the death penalty for. On the next episode of Murderville, now that Hercules Brown appeared to have committed a brazen double murder in broad daylight, would the police finally listen? Murderville, Georgia is a production of The Intercept and Topic Studios. Elisa Roth is our producer. Ben Adair is our editor. Sound design, editing, and mixing by Brian Pugh. Production assistance from Isabel Robertson. Our executive producer is Lital Molad. For The Intercept, Roger Hodge is our editor, and Betsy Reed is the editor-in-chief. I'm Liliana Segura.
1: And I'm Jordan Smith. You can read our series and see photos at theintercept.com slash murderville. You can also follow us on Twitter at Liliana Segura and at Chronic underscore Jordan. Talk to you next week.
0: Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news.